he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Gotta get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each episode I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutia that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker, and your name, let it be writ, continues to be in this new decade, this new year, Barbara Bell Geddes. And hello, happy new year. Happy new year happy 2020 i mean i'm recording this on january 8th so it's like girl we get it uh i am so excited to go into a new year within the details in particular because we are getting into what we are in award season and uh you know there's the golden globes there's the screen actors guild awards there's the there's the national society of film critics there's the Jupiter Awards or the Saturn Awards or the Uranus Awards or whatever there may be, but there are also the nuances. Uh, if you're not familiar, that is the a little award show that I created um, about a year ago, uh, looking back on the year of episodes I'd done and picking out my favorite nuances. And so I am so keen to do that again very soon. Of course, I'm not doing that today. I'm just kind of giving you a bit of a deep tease for what's coming. But I... I, I I actually have a bit more work to do to get that episode going. So I thought, well, let's do this one. Let's start 2020. Let's start the year with an episode about endings. And in particular, bonkers movie endings. In particular, five bonkers movie endings. And uh, some of them, uh, likely, maybe even almost all of them, you may have not seen. And to be honest with you, they are from movies that you don't really need to see. So... Well, yes, you could say that this episode is loaded with spoilers. I feel like, what am I spoiling? You know what I mean? Like, what's, what, is no, what is no longer being preserved? Um, because these are not, I, don't, I would not say that these are by and large um, cinematic masterpieces. Some, you know, are better than others. But uh, they're also mostly um, old and somewhat obscure. So uh, if you are kind of like, oh, well, if I haven't seen these movies, this episode, um, you know, like is just going to ruin a bunch of movies for me, just hang in with me. Because this is actually going to be more about using these five examples to kind of talk about this idea of bonkers movie endings. I think that the end of a movie, and I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary here, um, I think it's pretty significant. You know, I, I feel like with a movie, the closer you get to the ending, the more important every single shot is, you know? And there are so many kind of predictable movie endings. You know, there's, there's Happily Ever After, and the camera rises, and the screen fades out, and the, the couple is making out in the middle of public, and... Um, I don't know why I'm picturing you've got mail in this scenario, but uh, you've got mail is is a, is exactly what I'm talking about right now. But that's just also an ending that's referential to so many other endings that look like that. And I, I am fine with that. Whatever. I mean, you know, you got to end it somehow. But I, I love that tension at the end of a movie when you don't really know what the final shot's going to be. When you don't really know, you don't really 
you can't predict when it's going to cut to black. And I think because each shot is more and more important, like what it ends on is like a very significant choice. And I love a movie that ends on a, on a random shot or a random note. Uh, I think there's, oh, there's that movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini called Enough Said. And it's, it, to me, it's like a really quintessential example of just like a random, um, a random beat to end a movie on. But it, like in some ways, because of that, it's perfect. And I won't ruin what that is. So this, there are some non-spoilers, also because I think Enough Said is a great movie. And I'm, I'm also hoping that it's called Enough Said. Okay, I Googled it. It is. So um, the movies that we're going to be talking about today, though, are all horror movies. And I feel like... That may be because I was planning to maybe do this episode when I was doing kind of like the, you know, the, the spooky episodes of In the Details for October, um, or it's just one that I've been wanting to do for a while. But uh, I also think that horror movies really kind of lend themselves, obviously, to having a bonkers ending. You know, horror movies, like there's a sort of opera to them, you know, like there's there is that kind of like the colors are a bit brighter and a little more garish, or at least they're like allowed to be because the subject matter is so ridiculous. I think you could, you could kind of apply that same standard to like a musical, right? It's like we allow a certain um, suspension of disbelief or um, there's a bit of magic or a bit of mystic, you know, energy around it that we kind of just accept because that's what it takes to tell the story. And so I think it kind of makes perfect sense that, these movies that horror movies would have an ending that reflects that and isn't just the happily ever after. And I feel like this is very different from, and of course, you know, it's so on trend now to have an ending that's like a jump ending. You know, I think of all of those like Bloomhouse movies, like all the, 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 you know, I don't know, the conjuring or the, the other one, the one with Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne and the camera. Uh, I can't think of what it's called right now. And that's how like unmemorable, like those movies are to me. Um, but all of those movies rely on jump scares, you know, and the ending, it's always just that like final little like thing to get you before the credits. And it's so cheap. Like it's not about, it's not about kind of like ending the story in an interesting way. The movie is less a storyteller at all at that point. It's just a jack in the box. It's just trying to, it's, it's, it's trying to see how many times it can surprise you, how many times it can shock you, how many times it can get you to jump out of your chair. It's just... It's just trying to prod a reaction out of you. And that's not what a bonkers movie ending is. That's not what bonkers is is vague and specific at the same time. and a and a jump ending, while it does kind of suggest like a a movie ending in the midst of chaos, and that is in in essence a bonkers movie ending, it's I, it's not the same. And I think the one of the big distinctions, because another thing that a horror movie will do is we'll end with, you think, you know, it kind of dovetails with a jump ending, a jump scare, but you think that everybody's safe and you think that the final girl's going to get away or whatever. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, then she gets killed or, you know, they open the door and there's the killer and it's, um, and you realize like, oh shit, the nightmare's not over. And then there's the credits. That to me is not really a bonkers ending either because you kind of, it's kind of assumed what's going to happen, you know? I think the real distinction is that for a bonkers ending to really work, it has to be a, some semblance of a happy ending in that someone survives. It's not everybody dying and it's not everybody being happily ever after. It's some weird place in the middle. And it's more of a, you know, it's more of a, a darker ending. You know, it's like 
I think the Blair Witch Project is actually an interesting interesting example that is I consider to be an exception to the rule of the final person getting killed in the movie and the movie ending because I I think we don't really know what happens next. I mean, Mike is still alive in the corner, so like you know, spoiler alert, right? So you know, there is somebody still alive at the end, but I think it's the it's the energy of that. You know, I I love the end of the Blair Witch Project because I just think when they get to that house, like the mounting energy um, leading up to that ending is part of what I think qualifies for a bonkers movie ending. It's just getting more and more fever pitched. And so much of it, of course, is due to like Heather Donahue and just her just like ringing the rag out, you know. But I think but once she gets to that, the basement and she sees Mike in the corner and she's just like screaming and screaming and screaming like that's like – the fact that the camera just drops, I think, is is less of a, oh, she got killed and more of a like, oh, fuck, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. I know Mike's in the corner. I haven't even seen a witch. I know there's a lot of handprints on the wall. But, you know, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you don't you, – there's so many unanswered questions. There's so much that's not wrapped up or even suggested, you know? And I think that the Blair Witch Project is a great, more recent example of this. I think the um, really the gold standard of a bonkers movie ending, instead of trying to kind of explain to you like some sort of textbook definition, because like I don't really have that, you know, I, I know it when I see it, you know, um, but I think uh, the textbook, you know, gold standard, uh, you know, what all these endings should be aspiring to is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which, if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, it's very likely you've heard me talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre before. I've had two whole episodes dedicated to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, it, I, I think there's so much of what that movie did, I think, to kind of, like, define what I look for in movies. I think there, you know, like, I think it was, like, very formative in a way. And it's not that I necessarily lean towards, like, violent stuff or, like exploitative stuff or like whatever i think it's more it's more like marilyn burns's performance like i think i love tony collette and hereditary so much because i you know first saw marilyn burns when i was 12 and i was like this this is this is hitting the notes for me right like this is um this is the pitch that i want things to be at this is the opera that i want to see in horror you know and the end of that movie just is, I think, especially the first time I saw it, it was it was just so jarring because it was like, okay, well, she got away, but she's like stark raving mad, um, and Leatherface is just swinging that chainsaw, and like, the fact that it just like cuts out, like it almost feels like the cameraman's head got cut off, you know what I mean? Like it cuts out in such a random and violent way, and in the midst of a random and violent situation that isn't really over, but is like the nightmare is over. It's very sure the guy in the pickup truck who picks up Sally is not part of the family. She's safe, but like, and Leatherface's brother is dead, you know, and he has lost, lost Sally and he's got to go back in the house and face the cook. Like the suggestion of the continuing story is not an eventual end. It's just an, Oh God, this like, it's a, it's an iceberg of continuation, and we're kind of just cutting off mid-scream, you know? 
Um, I'm probably mixing up metaphors, icebergs and screams, but um, I whatever. Uh, if if I've list if if this is if you're hearing me say this, then I in in editing this this episode, I decided that that still worked. So um, or I forgot to edit it. So anyway, uh, I consider that to be what I am drawing. Um, my qualifications for in talking about these five movies today, or, you know, maybe where there's some points of reference, or um, in some cases, I think what these movies do well on their own. Like, I don't think everything has to be in homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I I like the decision that each of these movies made, you know, as a piece of art in itself and everyone behind it, um, especially the editor and the director and the writer to decide that this was the last impression we wanted to make on on the audience and and that it is unconventional and that it is um it's not pandering to people to that to that thing of like oh my god you know the killer is not dead is there a sequel like it's not even about that it's just about leaving people kind of on on edge you know like i think that that's actually more effective than these jump scares that are i think intended to kind of like get as many jolts out of you as possible but like what these bonkers endings do is like it's more of this like this feeling of like you you don't even know what to do with it. it's like all this kinetic energy that's built up in you and you don't even know what to do with it you know and so you're just sitting with this movie that hasn't fully resolved and if you want to feel uneasy like that to me feels like more long-term unease than um just kind of like having the last of the popcorn shaken out of your bag you know so another, I, what I would also consider a really fantastic example, um, and, and what I would say is in some ways, not necessarily an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but like so much a country cousin of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is actually Toby Hooper's follow-up in, I believe, 1977, Tourist Trap, uh, which is by and large not a great movie uh it there it's the kind of movie that by the end you're like oh god i just need a shower uh what i love about it is marilyn burns is in it um it's about this creepy guy played by neville brand who runs this uh disgusting little like hotel in the middle of the bayou and uh he's got this pet alligator and he's um He's definitely, I feel like, you know, I don't know if there is, I don't remember if there's a narrative of him, but he seems like someone who got like real fucked up in some kind of 20th century war and, um, and then whatever that didn't do to him, isolation in the middle of nowhere finished him off. You know what I mean? And so one by one, like, you know, people arrive at this hotel and are, you know, killed and fed to his alligator. And so... Marilyn Burns, she plays a woman with uh, her husband and their daughter who arrive at the hotel. The husband gets killed. The daughter, like, hides on, like, runs away and hides under the house. And Marilyn Burns gets tied up to a bed upstairs and spends a lot of the, the movie tied up and bound and gagged and screaming. Um, she, a real glutton for punishment, I got to tell you. There's a young Robert England, known mostly as Freddy Krueger. Uh, I guess that's some claim to fame. I think his infamous line was, um, uh, my name is Buck, and I like to fuck. So uh, crochet that for your grandma, you know? Um, anyway, let's talk. It's, it's the, okay, back up. One thought at a time, Colin. One, I will get links and find, I will find links that are, that if they're not just the clip of the ending, it's like 
queued up to the ending that you can find in the description of this episode if you want to go watch these. Um, you don't have to watch the rest of the movie. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to resolve a narrative here. We're just kind of talking about the aesthetic. But if you want to watch them, I feel like um, almost all of these movies are accessible either on um, YouTube as a bootleg or you know on one of the streaming services. So um, let's get to it. So the climax of Eaten Alive is... I actually think if you have not seen this movie or you don't if you don't know it, I actually think it's kind of fascinating if you watch the like the last couple minutes with no context. On its own as its own little piece of cinema, it is strange and and unnerving and unpredictable and hysterical and deranged and um and I and I think the lack of context really just like lends, you know, a real some real salt to that dish, you know. Uh I actually, I, I, I highly recommend watching it. I think describing it, I will never be able to fully describe the bonkersness of this ending. Um, and playing the sounds of it, like I'll certainly play a clip so you can get a sense of, of how it all ends. But it's, so much of it is driven by, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's driven by the the hysteria of the characters. And in particular, Marilyn Burns' character, Faye, who, as I said, had been, you know, spent most of the movie tied up in bed. And at the end, there's another character, Libby, who's been looking for her sister who was killed earlier in the movie. Um, it almost feels like a nod to Psycho, right? She comes back to the hotel and um, she hears Faye in her room screaming and she goes and she finds her and she unties her. And it's kind of fascinating because like, she gets Faye loose from the bed and Faye immediately runs and starts screaming for her child. Like the, um, the sort of maternal, like, you know, urge to like, forget me. I got to save my kid. It's, it's an interesting nuance in a, in a, you know, grindhouse movie. But so she, and, you know, so she's screaming and Libby's running after her and they, they go to run downstairs and then, you know, Judd, Neville Brand's character, he, he comes around the corner with this big scythe and he's chasing them up the stairs and, um, you know, he chases them into the room and, uh, like swings it at Faye and of course, you know, gets a good, good few slices in and, in an interesting kind of, oh, it feels like a nod to Texas Chainsaw Massacre as he goes to like kill her and like, I guess she dives out of the way or whatever. And he goes through the window and he doesn't like fall out the the window. But in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Marilyn Burns dives through two windows. Uh, and in this one, he goes through the window. So it was, you know, I appreciated that she didn't have to go through another window. Um, but, you know, she, she drags herself away. Libby runs away. She, you know, Faye dragged herself away. Um, the whole time all this is happening, by the way, the whole time all this is happening, uh, Judd has released his his uh, crocodile or his alligator. Um, I actually don't know if it's a crocodile or an alligator, and I think I have Wikipedia open so I can find out um, as I am looking at this. Um, crocodile. It's crocodile. Um, so he has released the crocodile to chase Faye's daughter Angie under the house and try to get her. So we're cutting back and forth between this chaos with Judd Libby and Faye, and then Angie, you know, trying to get away from the alligator, the crocodile, excuse me, um, Angie played by Kyle Richards, by the way, um, you know, under the house, it's, it's bananas, like, it's just like, it's this mounting tension, and so, like, Libby gets outside, and I think what happens is that Angie managed to, like, crawl up onto a fence, but then, like, her, her dress gets caught, and she basically, like, flops over, and she's hanging over, upside down on this fence, screaming with this alligator coming. Crocodile, excuse me. Um, so Libby's trying to free her from the fence, and meanwhile, 
Faye is fighting off Judd upstairs, and then he like throws her off the balcony of a second floor, and so then, uh, I think then he runs outside to go stop Libby and Angie, and he's like shaking the fence to try to like you know fuck with that. And meanwhile, Faye is like dragging her like broken body through the hotel to get outside. And meanwhile, I think I don't think he's arrived yet. No, I think Faye drags herself outside. Libby's trying to free Angie. Judd's trying to like get Angie to fall in the water. And then Faye gets out onto the porch and she like pushes Judd and he falls over the side of the porch. And then the crocodile comes out and like grabs him and bites him and pulls him into the water. And so then uh, the sheriff shows up. And as he's pulling up, Libby is getting Angie free. So like Angie is safe. Um, we know that Judd is dead. Faye is like on the porch screaming. And so then, um, you know, the sheriff runs and he's like, you know, checks with Faye and he's like, everything's okay. You're going to be okay. And then she, and she's just like, it's just this like waves of hysteria and it's just screaming my baby. Oh, my baby, Angie. And so I'm going to play kind of those last little bit here because as that's happening, it's just her screaming and Angie crying and it then we're just it it crosses you know cross fades to um you know the the swamp where Judd's been pulled in and I think it's like his uh I don't know his like wooden leg or something floats to the top at the end but um just the fact that that all of that chaos is going on and like everything's okay that's what's like so fascinating about this is that technically everything's okay because Angie's safe, Faye's okay, Libby's okay, the, the cops are there. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm going to play that here. It, it's uh, and, and I'm going to play it to the to the music sting at the end. You know that I think is um, just so entirely perfect. So continuing on this theme of bonkers endings that are driven by the hysteria of their character um, and driven by like the screaming, uh, I was one of the options I would I would say was kind of like a, a runner up on this list is uh, this wackadoo Spanish zombie movie called Tombs of the Blind Dead. Uh, you can definitely find it on YouTube. Uh, it the ending is so strange. I, it, it's I'm not even gonna. I'm, I think you should watch it. I think. Uh, that's one of those movies. If you like horror movies, you haven't seen it, you should watch it. There's something sort of novel about the ending. Uh, again, it's something where it's like, it's that category of like, okay, well, I mean, like, I guess technically there's a survivor. Um, but anyway, um, I guess that's sort of a spoiler, right? But just before I did this episode, I was reminded of Dario Argento's Tenebrae. And I've actually never been sure if that's how you pronounce the name of that movie, but we're going to call it Tenebrae, uh, which is... It's, I, I, I remember, I think I had it on VHS at some point. And I think it is definitely, if you're into Italian horror movies, if you're into Dario Argento, I think, you know, as a completist of sorts, if you are, then you should, you should totally, totally see Tenebrae. If anything, the Goblin soundtrack is so good. It is up there with Deep Red and Suspiria, some of my favorite 
um, Goblin scores. And the ending is just like classic bonkers, classic bonkers. So if you don't know the story of Tenebrae, the description of Tenebrae on, on IMDb, I feel like they're just very complete about it instead of me trying to ramble through a quick synopsis. Um, and this is just so you kind of have a you get a bit, bit of a grounding of things. Um, an American writer in Rome is stalked by a serial killer bent on harassing him while killing all of the people associated with his work on his latest book. Um, as I said, this episode should not feel like it's full of spoilers, but alas, here comes a huge spoiler. Turns out the author is the killer at the end. Um, and he uh, he's waiting at the end of the movie for his assistant, Anne, played by... Daria Nicolodi, who is most well-known for, um, among other things, essentially co-writing uh, Suspiria and appearing in a lot of Dario Argento's movies, um, including Deep Red, which I saw recently, and she's great in it. If you haven't seen Deep Red, ah, see Deep Red. I was afraid it wasn't going to be, like, woman enough, and, like, even though the main character is a guy, there's lots of women in it, um, and she's she's a great co-star. So... So she comes back to the house and he is waiting for her with this with an axe and, and she's trying to get the door open and he's approaching the door and there's some huge like metal sculpture that's just made up of all of these sharp pointy cones kind of all like intertangled together. As he's approaching the front door to kill her as she's opening it, I think she opens the door and it knocks into the sculpture and it falls and like impales him against the wall. And so... The end of the movie is him like impaled and like trying. It, it's like it's very it's pretty violent of him like trying to like pull the thing out of him, and she is just like screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming in the rain and screaming. And then the movie like just goes to black, but we still hear her screaming as the credits are rolling, and then they kind of it fades out as the music fades in, and it's so again, and and you know didn't die like the killer was killed you know um there's all these unanswered questions but it's there's a continuation possible here right like and and we're left just in her chaos we're left in her hysteria i think that's such a strange choice it's almost like they didn't know how to end the movie it's but it's like exactly how i want a movie to end so of course let me now play for you the finale of tenebrae which i was struggling to find on youtube and then I found the whole movie on um, archive.org, the Internet Archive. So apparently uh, that is a treasure trove of things. So th uh, that is the link you're going to find in the description here for Tenebrae is uh, the Internet Archive link. So I don't know how um, mobile optimized that is, but whatever. Here it is. Ah! <laughs> 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 
another uh, obscure horror movie from the 70s that you may have not seen, um, but I think is, is, is less sleazy than Eaten Alive, but um, again, not cinematic brilliance, is this movie from 1979 called Taurus Trap. So the description on IMDb is that a group of young friends stranded at a secluded roadside museum are stalked by a masked assailant who uses his telekinetic powers to control the attraction's mannequins. Uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a wackadoo movie. I feel like in terms of claims to fame, uh, Mr. Slauson is played by Chuck Connors, the guy who runs uh, the tourist trap, and he's, uh, I believe, had a bit of a career. And then, of course, the incomparable Tanya Roberts appears as Tina. Um, but she's not our final girl. I believe our final girl is played by Jocelyn Jones as Molly. And as I click on her IMDb profile, I see, oh, well, no, she had a, no, she, she did a few, she did a few tree things. All right. Um, not a lot. You know, sometimes when I go on IMDb and it shows like a huge gap in someone's career where it's like, oh, they haven't done anything since, uh, the 1996 TV movie Crime of the Century where they played woman shouting in crowd and then suddenly in 2018 uh, they're playing mother in The Second Son. And when I say they, I am talking about, of course, Jocelyn Jones. I'm just, is it the same? Jo- there's there's just probably multiple Jocelyn Joneses. So, but that being said, she has some headshots up here that are age appropriate. So she's clearly not, you know, she's not retiring. Oh, maybe she's... Anyway, let's not get too caught up in Jocelyn Jones, eh? Um, well, let's a little bit, because she's kind of the feature of this. So at the end of the movie, what I love about this is, um, and it, it does kind of tie back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because there is that sense of like, okay, well, she survived, but she's clearly crazy, you know? And at the end of Taurus Trap, uh, Molly kills Mr. Slauson, and then she, it's this great, I mean, I think I talked about this actually, I talked about this movie because I, on the episode where I talked about uh, Spooky Synths and other soundtrack surprises, because the soundtrack is by Pino Donaggio, and I think it it is really the star of this ending. It really is what makes this ending work. If Eaten Alive and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were driven by the hysteria of Marilyn Burns, then the ending of Taurus Trap is uh, very much relying on the hysteria of Pino Donaggio. Uh, because we get this, you know, th- this final, you know, climactic confrontation where Molly kills Mr. Slauson, and then kind of the impact of that hits her, and she just, like, puts her hands to her hair and just screams. And then that sets off, it, that sets off, you know, uh, Pino. And then the shot, the next shot as the music, and of course, you know, I'm going to play this for you. Um, The next shot as the music is swelling and pounding and racing to this kind of like abrupt conclusion is Imali in the, the, the convertible Jeep that she and her friends had behind the steering wheel. She's got five, um, mannequin dead friends in the car with her and she's at the steering wheel wide-eyed and crazy coming around the curve and you know and then it just like freeze frames on her like wild face driving away and i i think that is it's so fucking bonkers it's so bonkers and i think the fact that it 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 then just like cuts off. I think the cutoff is really important to a bonkers movie ending. Texas Chainsaw Massacre does it. Eaten Alive doesn't, and I appreciate that. But Taurus Trap does. And so I'm going to play for you here um, those final moments that I just talked about of Taurus Trap. 
Now, speaking of Pino Donaggio and speaking of um, bonkers endings that are driven by the the music and specifically driven by Pino Donaggio, uh, this will be a familiar entry if you've heard many other episodes of In the Details. Um, it is, of course, the ending to the original Carrie, which uh, is one of uh, my favorite movie endings. I think the end of Carrie, the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Others I can't think of right now, but those are probably like, you know, top two in the top of the list, you know. Uh, what I love about the end of Carrie is it's everything I've been saying about these other examples. You know, like, I wouldn't say that the villain has been killed, you know, unless you count like Carrie's mother. But um, Carrie's story is over, you know, and we know that Sue is the survivor. You know, like someone has survived all of this. And this final moment where she has this dream of going to the burnt down house and laying the flowers and then Carrie grabbing her arm. Like, I think, I I think maybe some people have interpreted this as like, Oh, this is Carrie the monster. But I think this is all um, reflective of, of Sue's guilt, her survivor's guilt, the, the guilt about, you know, um, having Tommy take Carrie to the prom at all in the first place. Like none of this would have happened if she, if she didn't do all of that, if she didn't get involved in any of this from the start, if she didn't throw the tampons at Carrie and scream, plug it up with the other girls. Like, I think there's so much of like, I shouldn't be alive. You know what I mean? Like I, I, you know, I'm the cause of all this and now I'm the only one left standing, you know? And and so that's what I think this ending is about, this nightmare is about, is not, you know, evil Carrie haunting her. It's it's Sue being haunted by her own decisions. And, of course, it's that chaos of her screaming and her mother, played by her real-life mother, holding her and trying to calm her down. And the best part about it, and I think that when you watch it, you can see it, but I think they've dubbed it out when she's she should be saying, Sue, Sue, it's okay. But in the moment, she calls her Amy. And I like, I don't know, something about that is just like one of my favorite pieces of movie trivia in this scene with her hysterical daughter, Amy Irving, that she she just became her mother, you know what I mean, instead of the actress, you know, or the character of the mother. And I, I think that's, um, I mean, it's a really intense moment. It really is. And, I, and, and what I love about it and what I've said about it before on this podcast is, especially I think on the uh, the Spooky Soundtracks episode, is that it just goes on a little bit longer than you expect it to. Like it really just like lays in this moment that, you know, like just like tourist trap, it just kind of like then just ends. And it's that like Pino Donaggio just like ends. And so we're going to, of course, listen to that here. One of my favorite clips to play on in the details, uh, second to uh, Tony Collette screaming, I'm your mother. Now, in some ways, I would say that much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie is kind of like 
creme de la creme of this and, and would be a great example to kind of cap off this, this little discussion of bonkers endings. But there's one more weird one that is a it's different from the others. It's not the same chaos. Like we've been talking about music. We've been talking about performance, like things that are driving a, a freneticism about what's happening. I think the other element of a bonkers movie ending is how much how much unpredictability you can kind of pipe into the moment. And you kind of have to earn that unpredictability. It's the end of the movie. So at this point, either the audience is on board, knows you, trusts you, has been willing to go, you know, however many minutes with you in this movie, or they're looking at their phone and they're like, oh, it's over. But like, when a movie is like, when I, when I don't trust a movie, but I keep watching it, it's because I'm like, oh God, I just have to see what it's going to do. I just don't trust this movie and I need to watch its every step, you know? Even if it's boring, even if it's like potentially terribly made, I, I think there are times where, and I think John Waters kind of does this as an art form is that in the midst of all of that like weird, unpredictable, like rough around the edges, like stuff of a movie, there's these moments of brilliance. There's these moments of insight or these moments of genius filmmaking. And you don't know if it was on accident or not, you know? And that is, um, that is where we arrive at when we talk about Horror House on Highway 5. This movie this movie has haunted me or had haunted me most of my my childhood wandering blockbuster video. The the VHS box was just this there was something so specific and um unpredictable and and it felt like it felt like someone had placed it there in the blockbuster video in you know Linden, New Jersey, in in the mid '90s, and like nobody knew about it. And then I found it. You know, the the cover art is kind of fascinating. I mean, it's you know it's a little bit of violence, but I uh, I love the kind of the the suggestion of the cover art of these movies, like the suggestion of a nightmare that just isn't really going to play out and the description on the back is I, I i remember reading as a kid and i'm going to read you the description from the vhs box instead of imdb because i think having that understanding of the movie is if you haven't seen it and i think it's very likely you haven't though you can absolutely find it on on youtube um is probably it's a good it's a good context because it's it's the context i had when i saw this movie so here we go a group of college students on holiday becomes prey for a killer and his two sadistic and demented sons. One son, an unlicensed doctor, is mentally unhinged by destructive brain parasites. Excuse me. The other son, a shy and lonely psychopath, falls in love with a dead girl. While the insane boys are blundering through their destructive rampage, the father stalks the night with random violence. Though he is shot, beaten, and run over by a car, the maniac cannot be defeated. One by one, the students enter the horror house, where they must face the malignant forces left behind by unnatural scientific experimentations. They are hunted down, tortured, and eliminated until only one girl is left to fight for her life against the trio of murderers. Directed by the, the notorious rock video maker Richard Casey. I don't know who that is. Horror House and Highway 5 is filled with strange humor and wild action. Um, I, 
I have not rewatched the entire movie to verify how true any of this is or isn't. Um, I think you don't need to see this movie, but if you haven't and you like horror movies, you might as well add it to your catalog. And if you can't get through the whole thing, just get to the ending. Because it's it's not that there's this like frenetic chaos about it. It's more like the opposite. And that's, I think, what rounds out this discussion of Bonkers movie endings is the the way that it plays out kind of so in the, in this weird kind of you feel like you've been drugged, but like not the entire dose. And so you're not knocked out. You're just like, like, I feel a little off. That's what this ending feels like. So at the end, as the box does suggest, there's one girl, there's a final girl left alive. I think at the end of the night, she like just falls asleep and she wakes up in the morning. And so it's like early morning, you know, it, it, the, the, the light of dawn and she sits up and she sees that she's a mere, you know, I don't know, a hundred feet from the highway, highway five, I would assume. And so she goes to the highway and, and there's, there's something about these shots. There's something about these shots of her, like trying to get somebody to like stop for her. And like this delirious energy of this, this, you know, roughed up teenage girl or college girl, excuse me, you know, trying to thumb a ride on the highway. So eventually this like rental van like pulls up and uh, she gets in and there's this guy who's just, you know, he, he's got this like, you know, sort of curly, froey hair and little beard and glasses. And he just, you know, a total like AV nerd behind the wheel pulls up and and she is um, not really fully explaining what's happened to her, but I'm going to play a little bit of the clip here so you can kind of hear their conversation. And what I assume is that the script had one line about hot chocolate and blankets in the back, and he was just left to, like, figure out variations of hot chocolate and blankets in the back. So let's just play that out here. Jeez, you don't look too good. Something happened to you? These people, they, over the hill, they, they killed my friends. They killed your friends? Jesus, they look like they tried to kill you. You're the only one that got away? <laughs> I think so. Hey, I got an idea. I'll pull over and I'll call the cops on one of those uh, call boxes. They'll know what to do. Oh, please do that, please. It's <laughs> some really crazy stuff on the radio, isn't it? My friends, I'm, they're crazy, don't you? They're crazy. Look, uh, you don't look too good. I got some, uh, I got some blankets, I got some hot chocolate in the back. While I'm making the call, why don't you go help yourself, okay? They killed all of my friends, all of them. I got some, uh, I got some blankets. <laughs> oh boy, I got some hot chocolate back there to really burn the roof off your mouth, man. I really think it go crazy. So she gets out. Now at this point, like, we, we, it's very clear, like, she has realized there's something sketchy about him because what you don't, obviously you can't see this because you're listening, but she sees on his dashboard some kind of, like, satanic, you know, uh, iconography. I think there's some kind of tarot card and a little statue. She has figured out that there's something creepy about this guy. 
So when he pulls over to use the, the little emergency phone and she gets out and kind of like goes along with the, okay, I'll go in the back for the blankets and the hot chocolate. It's a strange choice. It has to drive the, it, we, we need to get to this moment. So I'm going to forgive Horror House and Highway 5 for giving a character strange motivations. But she goes around to the back of the van, she opens the door, and then a hand grabs her, and lo and behold, it is the Richard Nixon-masked killer grabbing her and trying to pull her into the van. Now, my expectation here is that he would get a hold of her, pull her into the van, because what happens is the other guy, the, the you know, hot chocolate and blankets guy. Hey, don't forget the hot chocolate. There's blankets back there, too. So he gets back into the van and starts to drive away. But Nixon killer, I don't think I mentioned this earlier that he's wearing a Richard Nixon mask. Um, He's like trying to pull the girl into the van. And my expectation is that he would. He would pull her in, the guy would drive away, and that would be the ending. And I wouldn't even be talking about it because I don't like endings where someone doesn't survive. Pull her in and let's go! But what happens is that he's trying to pull her and he's trying to pull her and she pulls away and she falls back on her butt and the van like drives away with the Nixon guy in the back and he's like, you know, it's almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like, oh, I didn't get her, you know? And so she's just like sitting there staring kind of dumbfounded like, whoa, what what just happened? But then we kind of have the, the view from the van looking out, like seeing her and then the killer kind of just like pulls the door closed and then the movie ends. And that was just so like unexpected to me that they would let her survive, that they would do all of that at all if they weren't going to have this like, oh, gotcha, bitch kind of ending that movies tend to do in these moments. And so I think ultimately what it is, is it's that unresolved feeling. And what, you know, if, if somebody survives, it leaves you unresolved because you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, oh, so she's okay. But like, why aren't you emphasizing that? Like, it, I love that. I love that unpredictable note. And so all of that really adds up to what I think are some great examples of bonkers movie endings. And now I know because these are wildly obscure for the most part that this is by no means a complete list. This is really just a talk, some talking points. But I am desperate to know examples that you know of and love or consider, you know, in your own definition of bonkers movie endings or my definition, like send me examples a long way of saying send me examples like i just i it's it's definitely one of my favorite nuances from movies is uh this kind of unpredictable ending so uh we'd love to hear your suggestions uh and if you want to send those along to me it's very easy you just send me an email at in the details pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on twitter at colin drucker or on instagram at colin drucker underscore um, you can also find more of me on All Right Mary, talking about drag queens and drag competition, reality TV shows, or of course, Best Supporting Podcast, talking about Best Supporting Actresses with Nick Kachanov. So um, a whole lot of that. Anyway, uh, the next episode, which will be coming out very shortly, will be the second annual Nuances. So I am very excited about that. Um, And now, alas, in this episode of Endings, I'm going to wrap things up in an entirely predictable way. And thank you for joining me for another celebration of acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutia in the details. So yeah.